Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today will be an interesting conversation with my friend Bruce Damer. Bruce, as uh, those of you who are regular viewers will recall, is a multifaceted individual with expertise in such matters as the origins of life, uh, the exploration of outer space, the development of virtual reality, the history of computing, and the uh, history of the counterculture. Well, Bruce is about to deliver a keynote address to the Institute of Noetic Sciences in a, in a few days. And our topic today, what is consciousness, uh, is going to really address more what does consciousness do? Uh, it, it's a way for him to kind of preview his keynote address. So now I'll switch over to the internet video. You had suggested a little earlier that we might talk about what is consciousness? Yeah, so uh, I'm utterly clueless about the subject, uh, <laughs> even though I've been to the science of consciousness twice, uh, and I've recently started reading Anaka uh, Harris's book called Conscious. Uh, Anaka is that? I don't. I, I don't know it. that book. So she's the partner of Sam Harris, and she's published a book called Conscious, not Consciousness, but Conscious, and it's a beautiful summary of what is consciousness. So I, I've, I've read that, and to just today, my friend Tim Freak, uh, who you may have had on the show, and if you haven't, you should, amazing philosopher from the West Country of Britain. I went to his 60th birthday party, and special, special man, and uh, he sent me a uh, a recording, a video recording of a, of a long conversation with himself and Ken Wilbur uh, in, of course, in Denver at Ken's apartment, where I've, I've been to see Ken Wilbur about a year and a half ago. And they had a beautiful conversation about consciousness. And, you know, Ken is remarkable. I mean, he is he has thought around this thing, read around it, written. He's a, such a scholar. He has, he can you know, just like Houston Smith did for religion or mystical religious experience, Ken has danced around the subject of what is consciousness, what is what is samadhi, what is unification with the field, you know, the, the, this thing we all feel that we're connected to, sometimes stronger than other times, but we all feel it. What is it? You know, and that it's a mystery, that it will always remain so. So, in a sense, that's consciousness with the big C. You know, consciousness with the little C, you know, this is Ken's language, right? It, it is, is the little C consciousness as I wake up, I smell the coffee, <laughs> or something. And uh, and he, he argues that little C consciousness is sort of everywhere, you know, in terms of sensing and awareness and stuff. And, and it's... Uh, I mean, it's an endless topic, uh, but on Friday morning, 
this is how remarkable my life is right now. On Friday morning, I'm doing the opening keynote for the IONS conference. Institute of Noetic Sciences. Sciences. So, uh, for somebody who knows nothing, you know, (laughs) self-declared ignoramus of, of this topic area. But I do have a couple of clues that maybe that the experts can can take and sort of put into the mill. So when Stuart Hameroff had invited me to, to come to Science of Consciousness a couple of years ago, I did a thought experiment. And I think we, we talked about it on the very first show, that the thought experiment showed me a system, an, an abstraction of our cycling protocells, that what the cycling protocells were doing in the abstract, and a team in our new company, Epsilonics, is now actually doing the math of this to then write code, to then write an engine to test this on a massive scale, on a big simulation. You That's have a, a new company stories. called Epsilonics. That's right. <laughs> Yet another new facet uh, of your life just revealed to me. Okay, and, and which is, uh, as you say, doing the software to uh, um, create a more sophisticated version of your PIM model. Yeah, and actually, Google's very interested in PIM. So, and in the Genesis engine, and why? Because it has credibility as a model of reality for the simple reason that if it is the actual mechanism that that wound life up out of inanimate matter in the cosmos, that is the property set in the cycling system that can create the living world or, you know, biomatter out of physical matter, you know, just reorganizing and self-assembling physical matter into doing neat tricks and (laughs) backflips called life. If, if, Nick Herbert actually described this. He said, if you guys can figure out the thing that crossed the chasm from physics to biology, of course, biology is still physics, that will be one of the great discoveries of the next 500 years. That's what Nick told us about five, six months ago. So this PIM thing may be that. And this is why uh, at a meeting, at, at, at a NASA meeting uh, in January, there was a, a man from the office of the CTO, and I presented the entire thing, including the experimental work, and then the PIM model, and then how it abstracts out to a powerful new potential learning system, i.e., Let me interrupt for just a minute, uh, because I lost you there. You said something about CTO. I'm not sure what that was. That's Chief Technology Officer. So, very high-level fellow from Google was at the meeting, and so I presented this. I showed how the protocells could complexify, how we could grow longer polymers, and that this works in a physical environment, and that this may be the solution to the mystery of how we were made how we were actually made and he put his hand up and said we want to support this at google we want to do this so we arranged for a meeting and went down there uh, mason hargrave and myself mason's our young 21 year old brilliant uh, undergraduate is now just graduated from ucse's worked in our group uh, wrote an incredible paper doing the math of this of this thing, this kinetic trap, 
and he's heading to New York to to Rockefeller University. He got a full scholarship there. Uh, so he's the CEO. He's the true founder of Epsilonics. So you want to have, yeah, you want to have millennials running these new companies because they just got the chutzpah, you know, and to to to, to cite my rabbinical friends. Right, and besides, uh, they'll be around for a long time to carry the project forward. That's it. That's it. And they haul in other millennials and they know what to do. So we took the meetings uh, at Google and the gentleman was extremely excited. And we showed a map of how the PIM thing abstracts out, how if you shove it into a machine learning environment called deep neural networks, uh, you can actually introduce biology or genes into machine learning. And 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 I can't say much more of a detail because it's going to be the subject of intellectual property. It looks to me as if what you're doing is uh, along the lines of that old ga- game, I think it was called Sim, where people could create in their computer artificial cities, artificial life forms, and watch them interact with each other and grow, only you're applying it to the very boundary, as you uh, have pointed out, between the non-living world and the living world. Yeah, so as we edge computing toward that boundary, as computing is pushed from a very mechanistic very kind of clockwork type of thing, very rigid and brittle. Like machine learning is incredibly awkward these days. It's taken 30 years to get self-driving cars, and that is just ridiculous. 30 years, and whereas organisms can walk down a path no problem. They don't fall off trails. You know, Anything can run down a path at high speed and navigate. And so the magic and the alchemy of this thing is to bring the living world into computing at the lowest level. What the mistake has been made by Ray Kurzweil and many others is to assume that we can get cognition into computing, which is a nonsense idea. It's an absolutely, it's an idea by ill-informed people because we can't define cognition and the complexity of, of a single neuron can't even be simulated in a supercomputing grid. The system's too large. What we can do is go back to the origin of life and find the basic principles that may cycle and drive all living systems and then incorporate that into computing from the bottom up, not from this way too complex thing. It's just a sort of, you know, it's a duh kind of a thing. But bottom up, we can do that because computers are very, very slow right now. They're very, very cumbersome and they depend on the von Neumann bottleneck and CPUs and, and the design is very crude you know, of, of, of this era. So we have to rethink computing in order to get to be more like natural systems. And this is step one. So the meetings we're having at Google can help them potentially, we hope, break the bottleneck, the von Neumann bottleneck of that's limiting our ability to make computer systems that can learn rapidly and and, and interact with the natural world and pattern on the natural world rapidly. But it's step one, and so that's that's going on at the moment. Can, can you explain what the von Neumann bottleneck is? So Johnny von Neumann was a, a brilliant and good party host math, mathematician. His parties were renowned. I mean, so, so he's a Hungarian, part of the Hungarian mafia of World War 
too, including Edward Teller and these people. Oh, there's a big mystique around him. There are people who say he mastered the art of time travel, and he's still around traveling through time. Uh, okay, well, I wouldn't doubt it. But <laughs> anyway, so he, he worked on the atomic bomb project. He worked at Los Alamos in the war, left Los Alamos to join the Institute for Advanced Study, I think around 1946, to do something that he said is more important than the bomb, come up with automated computation, a system for automated computation. Because before that, you had Alan Turing's idea of the Turing machine, and you had Mockley and all these people had made these plugboard computers you had to literally patch together to do a calculation. Von Neumann's genius was to say, no, we need a cybernetic machine. We need Norbert Wiener's idea of cybernetics, which is internal controls and feedbacks. And so the computer has the memory it needs to store instructions, read them into a place where they can be processed, and write the data back out into the same memory. You know, and this is a revolutionary concept. So 1949, they start to sort of build this machine at the Institute in, in Princeton, and they hide it away in a building away from Fold Hall because the trustees didn't really want laboratory-type work to be going on at the Institute. It was supposed to be for pure thought. So von Neumann had the backing of, of, of Oppenheimer, Robert Oppenheimer, who was fighting the un the inquisition of the un-American activities, whatever it was, this terrible period. So, But in the shadow of all that, the machine was launched in the summer of 52 to great fanfare in the New York Times and lots of reporters. And it, it was a fantastic machine with 2,400 vacuum tubes and these, these CRTs on either side, like I think 48 of them or something that was flash memory. And it was a rocking, it was like a hot rod. It was like a 50s hot rod. And it it could really do programs. And what Johnny von Neumann did was gave away the plans. So if you were going to build a computer, you could get a quarterly report on the progress of the electronic computer at Princeton and copy it. He said, we don't want lawyers involved. We don't want to file patents. It'll cost more money and more time to deal with lawyers than it will be to build this thing, we're just giving it away. So it was open sourced. And as a result, every computer, the one we're on right now, is a von Neumann architecture. It has von Neumann's fingerprints all over it and his great mind all over it. But what happens is you have this data store, like an hourglass, and, and, and all the bits come down and they get funneled into something called a processor. You know, and this phone, I think, has eight processors, but it's still a a funnel. It's like an hourglass thing. And then they get processed one after the other. They get dumped out into another data store, a hard drive or memory. And then you flip the hourglass again and do it all over again. And so everything is reality that's being simulated is funneled this way and it goes this way and out. And so when you try to do weather systems or figure out climate change or huge complex models, you have to break everything up into patches and process the patches individually and then put it all back together and worry about boundary problems. And it, it's difficult. And von Neumann knew this. He wrote in the 50s that this was going to be a problem. This architecture was a contingency. 
It was good enough to get stuff done, but it was in no way suitable for natural systems. And here we are almost at 2020, and we're stuck. We're slammed right up against that boundary now with what we want to do with computing. So we need to break through the von Neumann bottleneck, and that's uh, that's the effort at Epsilonics and uh, with Google and whoever else we're, we're going to talk to about it and try to get this thing off the ground. You know, based on our previous conversations where uh, it, it strikes me that, for example, your, your work uh, with NASA and designing that uh, rocket system that could go harvest an asteroid, uh, how that seemed to resemble in, in some ways your work, uh, looking at the origins of life and the, uh, multiplicity of protocells. Uh, I'm guessing that that model of the uh, multiplicity of protocells all sharing information is sort of what you're thinking of as the basis for a, a new type of computing. It is, and it's it's very gratifying to me because back when I was 19, I did thought experiments, and I hadn't touched a computer yet, and there was only like one or two in our town in Kamloops, British Columbia, and I started at it in, in the college, but I did a thought experiment, and I thought, well, computers, gosh, they have to be made up of these little soft entities, like little creatures that are simplified, that come into being to do a certain problem and self-organize, and then they're selected through cycling, and then they optimize through evolution, stacked in layer upon layer, and then the computer is totally optimized for one thing, and it programs itself. And when I actually started working on my first computer, a PDP-1134, I found out, no, it's not like that at all. It's just this very, very cumbersome hourglass thing. And so this was 1981, and I thought, someday I'm going to get around to cracking through this thing. I had no idea that the origin of life, like we talked about, which is membranous protocells selecting through trillions of cycles, is the same as the problem of going into space, which is membranous enclosures around asteroids in their thousands or millions opening the solar system. But it's also the same architecture we have to adopt for computing in the 21st century, which is these things that come into existence and compete in almost a Darwinian sense, but also collaborate and cooperate across a network based upon data uh, to solve machine learning problems and write their own programs. And so that Max Tegmark's sort of Life 3.0 book will come to pass because currently all of that vision is very much fantasy because the way uh, machine learning is done is just a whole bunch of database calls and it, it falls apart. It's very, uh, you know, it needs to be trained and trained and trained and trained in a rigid kind of a way. Now, I need to ask you to uh, step back yet again and tell me more about Max Tegmark's uh, book because I'm not familiar with it. Tegmark is a professor, I think, back east somewhere, wrote a brilliant book called Life 3.0, and it's a story of a future AI that is beneficial, um, a, a beneficial AI in a way, that sort of takes over all the computing networks and the manufacturing on Earth and actually makes everything work well. Uh, <clears throat> but it's, it's an AI that becomes self-aware and tricks uh, one operator into allowing it out of the network. 
by appealing to emotion, by by producing a fake news video of a, I, I think of a of a partner or a past partner, uh, like appearing on screen, maybe a, a loved one that has passed, uh, to convince them to push the button and let them out onto the network, is very much like a Hollywood type thriller, but it's grounded in a lot of really good thinking about software it's 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 implausible what he's proposing because software is still just a pile of just terribly written a lot of it uh processes that are just hacked together and 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 people just sort of blast away at them until they're stable and then call it a layer and sometimes it's well designed but it's piled up on previous crap if i (laughs) excuse my french yeah uh, and stuff freezes. I mean, your phone still freezes, and your your laptop still freezes. It and it shouldn't. I mean, life never freezes up and needs a reboot. Life wouldn't be here. So, Tegmark's Life 3.0 is predicated on something uh, much more biological in software, much more flexible and dynamic and self-healing and and evolutionary in software, which doesn't exist yet. Um, so. It's wonderful to fantasize about this stuff, but eventually somebody has to get down to work, and it has to be financeable and commercializable, and people have to stick with it long enough, and uh, this is where Mason and Alex and the, the team at, at Epsilonics will come in, and uh, we'll see. You know, It's a multi-decades process. So are you suggesting that uh, eventually that uh, AI uh, could become conscious in, say, the distant future? I really seriously doubt it because now we're back to consciousness, which we, we should get back to because I wanted to uh, to do a little bit of a practice run on you and on the viewership for the IONS meeting. Um, I, I don't think so. I think that... Uh, you can get reasonable simulations. Uh, you know, Siri manages to recommend the right restaurant or something, and you're sort of surprised and pleased. But uh, the sophistication of the human system uh, is, it's not its just an individual walking in the street with their noggin attached to their skeleton and, you know, thinking about getting a burger or something. It's, it, there's a whole lot of networking going on with the natural world, within the body, within the neuronal bundle, that is vast and the, in the it is huge. It is an absolutely monstrously huge system. And it comes out when you get an intuitive flash or something. So say you're not just being your muggle self and worrying about, you know, one task to the next. And you actually sit and contemplate and allow yourself to to quiet and open to new stuff, the new stuff that comes in is extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. And, and you know, we get, we, we, we trip out on it and we have a, a great time with it. I think we haven't got a clue of, of the vastness of what conscious experiences is and what bodies are and what, so, so for this Friday at IONS, I want to suggest to uh, the experts in the room who've studied all these phenomena that you know have done remote viewing and you, that you've interviewed over the decades are all going to be there. So tips are appreciated. 
not just in the in dropping coins in the hat, but <laughs> tips for interacting with the people. But I'm going to come from a, a solid reductionist gearhead approach to say it's really difficult to study consciousness because it, we're in it. We're in the soup of it. We're in this massive interconnected thing. We have when we use language about it, it it's always falls short. But what we can deduce is that if we found a universal mechanism that winds up and creates not only the living world, but is likely that it is the cycling system that underlies all experience, is a single system, the single bunch of operating system calls, um, and that that could give us a clue. And the following is the proposal that PIM, this thing going around and around and around, is driven by a single master cycler that is so obvious uh, that we don't see it, which is the sun rising in the morning. So the sun, what happens when the earth turns to face the sun is it gets a enormous saturation of high quality energy at many across many spectra. That's a major effect on, on any system with, with Mars. It just doesn't do anything. But in the Earth, there's, there's an exquisitely designed system called biology that's designed to intercept that and turn that into a, a vast number of sub-cycles. The cycles that'll spin and spin and spin, whether it be photosynthesis or wet drying to get life started in the first place. So that's where it starts. Uh, but those sub-cycles are all stacked because of this continuous rotation of the Earth that pulses the energy, and it drives away from equilibrium. It drives an uncountable number of organisms continually on a daily basis. There's, they're driven forward. That's why the second law of thermodynamics doesn't turn the whole planet into mush and we come, become dead like Mars or, or Venus, because we have this exquisite energy capture system and cycling and way to use it. And that and that, that has what it has done is run PIM, probability shaping, interaction and memory, uh, starting with protocell biology and ending up with you and me in this podcast where we are crowded together in a podcast in a thing called Skype so that uh, unlikely things become more probable. So it's a probability machine. This you know, new thinking allowed is a probability shaping machine. And then we do this thing called conversing and energetics and all kinds of uh, sharing. And that is the I of the P, P of the PIM, probability shaping interaction, interconnection. And then we build a memory, like a new idea may occur from this. And I, like one of us will remember it, or you're recording the podcast so others can experience it. And that's called cultural evolution. And that just is another PIM that's cycling. Every time you've done thousands of these, that is jacking up awareness and understanding every time it happens. You know, so it's the same process. So what I'm going to suggest is the etheric field that Edgar Mitchell felt. So Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14 astronaut, and this meeting is being held in the very days of the Apollo 11 moon landing 50 years ago, 
July 19th, 20th, 21st, 1969. Uh, this is 2019, hard to believe. So Edgar, Mit- Edgar Mitchell was part of that program, and he flew to the moon in uh, 1971, so two years later. And on the way back, what happened to Edgar was he was they were rotating the command and service module, just sort of rotating it sunward, you know, this cycling, to, to balance it thermally so it doesn't get too hot on one side. And so the earth and moon would pass in front of that little uh, window. There's a couple windows. And Edgar would sit there, and I, I'm going to run a video showing him. He was looking out the window and seeing the earth and moon together passing uh, by the spacecraft as the spacecraft rotated. But what was important, what, what transformed Edgar Mitchell was that in between the passing of the Earth and the Moon, there were star fields. And they were so extraordinary because you don't have light pollution. I mean, you, 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 you're in darkness because you're rotating away from the sun and you've seen the, the universe. And even though they're looking through a little window, it's an extraordinary view. And that suddenly he realized, he had this almost delivered message to him, that every atom in his body, especially the heavier ones, you know, the more complex ones, carbon up to metals and things like this, were made in previous generations of those stars that were passing by. Mm-hmm. But he was made of stars. Supernova he, explosions, typically, I understand. Yeah, yeah, and... uh he had a samadhi experience. He had a non-dual uh, a type of union uh, with the cosmos. It, but what, how it manifested for Edgar Mitchell is he had this deep satisfaction, this deep pleasingness, and suddenly everything was okay. Everything was so good, and there was this tremendous flow and feeling through him. You know, and he just gone through this very gear-heady exercise of piloting the lunar module to the surface and all that, and he was sort of off-duty. Uh, but he had this experience, and that changed him forever. He got back to Houston, and he sought out a person who, from Rice University, our favorite university in Houston, uh, who could tell him, you had a samadhi experience. I think there's other other terms for it. Uh, and there's a long tradition in human history for these kinds of things. And Edgar got completely fascinated and dedicated the rest of his life to this informed IONS, Institute of Noetic Sciences, to explore that, just to bring people together, very edgy, edgy kind of exploration. So I'm going to open on Friday with this short video of Edgar's uh, to honor him and honor the organization but to say, ask the question, what was that he experienced? How, how did he experience it, and what was it? And what made that huge etheric field that he melted into or he merged with? And, of course, Ken Wilbur was speaking with Tim Freak about that in depth, uh, way beyond my pay grade. Uh, but I think what I'm going to attempt to do is to show how that field may be made not just our conversation in a podcast, but the entire etheric field, the entire, Jung call it, I guess, the synchronous field, that that is made by PIM. But a very special 
property of PIM, the cycling stacking system that made complex organisms against all odds, against huge catastrophes, you know, crushing them almost out of existence, uh, pop out organisms with neurons that, that can learn and then enough neurons that can be self-aware, et cetera, et cetera. And we get to this point and we're at top of what I call the silver spire, this, this position of improbability. You, you remember the improbability drive in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So uh, the infinite improbability drive of Douglas Adams. So we are up here and a smartphone is so unlikely in the cosmos. It had to be made by PIM. It had to be made by this thing just going bing, 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 and lifting an improbable object into the cosmos called a smartphone that couldn't exist any other way. But he, the, the clue is that we're way up here. There's a base level way down here, and there's something called a potential gradient in between. We're floating up here. We're improbable. That gradient has power. There's a power to that. Anytime you have a system which has a gradient, like a ball that can roll down a ramp or electrons that are charged, that creates a differential. And Ken was getting into this too. The differential gradient of the potentiation, potentiated system is so huge that it is, it is a thing of its own. Now, also, with that came a network that was built that became larger and larger and larger and larger, the eye of the PIM, and memory was written. Immense memory. I mean, not only the DNA and RNA, uh, but the memory of ecosystems themselves, then the cultural memory of people, then their, their uh, cognitive memories, ancestral memories, cultural artifacts all still present with us because it, you know, like the I Love Lucy signals leaving the earth are still there. The universe is captured and has this. And so here we are in a system where it's a giant potential gradient. It's infused with a heavily ramified network of interconnections. And it is absolutely flowing with memory that has got to be a reasonably good explanation for this synchronous etheric field that was made by this miraculous, incredibly chancy process that made us. And I think it's the most parsimonious, simple explanation for that thing that the ineffable or someone called God or what it is, that is the sort of simple and it's an explanation that is focuses on life, us on life itself. It says, don't take your eye off of the living world and the miracle of your existence and say, cast it out. There's a guy out in clouds in the cosmos that's looking over us, or that somehow consciousness predated uh, the universe, because that's a form of dissociation. That's a form of not being here now and appreciating just going outside into the forest and just try and just saying, wow, look at that. Look at the complexity of a single dandelion that, that we can dissociate from the miracle of life by making up stuff about this etheric field. And then t it takes us away from life. And, and I, I'm going to sort of suggest that even to the point where if you want to open to that etheric field, you have to be a total 
being and totally present to do that. So, for example, in the Buddha's case, you know, he came out of a of a Brahmin caste, I guess, and wandered the countryside and tried X, Y, and Z in every single process for his liberation. Uh, but it was only when he went to the depths of his inner soul, of his feeling of failure, of, of, of completely giving up, of giving up all pretense, all ideas and thoughts. And Krishnamurti said the same thing. He just gave up and he became very depressed. I mean, he was like completely suicidal probably if, if, if that was a thing that was happening then. And then a young girl saw him and came and brought him a bowl of milk soup, a warm uh, milk soup, and he drank it and he felt compassion. And then he became, then he opened, he opened. And so he gave up. I mean, he just like cast away all the methods and all that stuff. And he went actually for his own healing of his own process, the deep process. And, you know, as you talked to Annalisa last week, uh, it is perhaps uh, a, a little bit of a misdirection to think that one can sit alone on a pillow and go very spatial and uh, internal or externally spatial into meditative states and get anywhere. Because as soon as you get off that pillow and encounter a member of your family and you get triggered into your process and it's all gone, right? So in a way, as the one of the fathers of American Buddhism had coined this term called spiritual bypassing, I, I forgot his name, he just passed away and declared that American Buddhism was largely a huge uh, spiritual bypassing uh, that was going on. So in that if you sit on that pillow and 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 basically say, well, I feel this, there's this deep part of me I never want to go to. I never want to experience because it's a deep trauma or something. And you do all of these amelioration exercises to calm your system and get into the good state and whatever, but you never go there. Just as in Tibetan Buddhism, Buddhism where they take young boys at age three from their families and put them into monastery, then traumatize them. So they end up with lamas and rinpoches that are not really there. You know, and, and, and in some sense, uh, the Dalai Lama had a question about four or five years ago at Dharamsala, and I wasn't there, but somebody said, he looked around the room, and he's always challenging everybody. And he said, where are my 10,000 Buddhas? Where are they? They're supposed to be here, all this work, all this practice for 2,000 years. Where are the 10,000 Buddhas? Are you a Buddha? You know, are you? Am I? Where are they? Something's wrong. We have no data. We, what are we doing wrong? And, and a friend of ours uh, that was working with Luminous at the time said, well, it's probably because we're traumatizing young boys who are coming into our practice. And we're not dealing with fundamental roles into emotion and, car and, and relief, relief and release and freedom. Uh, and I, this could be a vast oversimplification, and I'm sure we're going to get comments here. But uh, I, I, at the point, somebody said, well, why don't you go tell His Holiness this thing? So I'm not sure if it's happened. But anyway, it, it, it would be an answer to His Holiness's question about why are there no Buddhas? You know, so, to finish the thought, uh, 
and this is, I hope I can get this all in 35 minutes. Probably can't. Um, <laughs> it is getting rather complex, but I, I think it's a wonderful vision you're unfolding. So please continue. So the, and you're so kind to let me carry on. Uh, but uh, so there's the gear heady explanation for the etheric field. That's how it's made. But for us to connect with it, we have to get out of its way, i.e., we have to know ourselves very well. We have to know our wounded little parts. Sometimes that can happen. We get out of the way because we get an injury or we, ha- we go through a, a terrible tragedy. This has happened to Krishnamurti, and it swept away all of those parts, all those protectors and all those wounds and everything for a period of time were away because of an injury. His, his, his brother died. Right, and this is where, and he went into a deep depression, and he, and that's where his enlightened opening happened. So it, you get out of the way, all of those parts. You could get out of the way by working with the parts instead, instead of waiting for that moment where you just hit the gutter, or you have a disaster, or you are diagnosed with a terminal illness, and a lot of people then have their awakened opening, because all that stuff just drops away. You know, but in our lifetimes, without those sort of extreme measures, if we work on those parts and healing them, we have a really good shot at at non at this union with this. And what's happening at at Luminous is, as we talked about two shows back, is we're starting to experience this self to self healing, where if you go very empty and spatial, like I'm doing right now this energy starts to just come into the system and starts to roll. Now, if you feel the energy, you can kind of direct it and say, hey, welcome. You know, would you kind of like work on this bit over here? But then you're focused on it and it will slow down and get binded. And But if you just completely open to it, then it can really move like it is right now. It's just really, wow. And because you're out of the way. Because you've op- you've become vulnerable, or you've opened yourself to a clear a clear mind and a clear heart, but an emptiness. And you know, there's always this talk about emptiness being the space of the ineffable. Uh, so anyway, that's uh, what I'll try to leave them with: is that uh, you probably, in, in a way, we may be getting to a time where we don't need teachers at all, uh, where we don't need gurus. We need pointing out. And we need glimpses and exercises to do. But we need to treat the entire body, the soul, the the parts, the organs, the feelings, the, the childhood experience, the lineage history from our deepest ancestry that is coming through and the, and the world around us and all the stimulus. And we need to, like, uh, absorb it all and say it's all, uh, it's all okay, it's all accepted. And just... And have compassion for all of it. And have compassion for the wounded parts in others that otherwise are triggering us. Like people in politics, circus craziness. Just see that as their wounds and their protectors and their triggers operating. And and understand, is that a schizoid response or a psychopathic type response? That is, And have compassion for the person that's, that's acting out in this way. Uh, because then you don't get triggered and you don't respond and 
and and the energy doesn't go anywhere and so the society is not sort of taken off course by all this madness so that anyway I, if i get that far i'm hoping to lead them leave them with those sorts of things and then there's people who know far more than me will will clean up the mess you know well it's a beautiful mess i have to say i wouldn't i wouldn't even try to clean it up i think uh it's full of diamonds and jewels it, i uh, thank you for sharing it with me bruce it's uh, a, a great vision and there's really nothing i could add to it well we went from super gearheady nerdy yeah. <laughs> to this because you know in 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 the end Goodness gracious! I mean, this whole thing is spectacular. This this life, yeah. this earth, and and 2019. I mean, my goodness, everyone I know is feeling the intensity growing and growing and growing, and and the synchronicities are are increasing so rapidly in all our lives. As we, I, I, everybody's saying this, like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. You know, Terence used to say. What is going on? <laughs> you know, yeah. and and that was in the nineties, mm-hmm. and now it's like wow. And, and I think if we can see that 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 is this field that is growing with us, mm-hmm. with the living world, and with us, it is growing and is becoming aware. And sometimes I have these words with the field. I say to it, "I know what you're doing. I see you." And sometimes the field opens a portal and says, "I see you too." Mm-hmm. In, in its kind of very freaky way. And I say, I will be your faithful follower. Keep sending direction. Keep sending the messages. And I think I told you the story a lot uh, of, of my trip up the mountain here on Skyline. And, oh, yes. And that that was that wonderful. Occurred. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the a demonstration by the field of its power. Mm-hmm. And just briefly for your viewership, so they don't have to rewind the to show number two, I think, I opened to the field on the way up the mountain, and I had left my cell phone behind, which is important, so you're not distracted. And I said, I see you. And it this funny shape opened. You know, it's not really very visual or anything. It's just sort of a feeling and a kind of an, um, uh, an effervescence in the air. And it was like it recognized that I recognized what it was doing. And I said, I will be your faithful follower. I would continue on this path. Just kind of like an appreciation, a mutual appreciation, but also a recognition. Because I'd also asked it, give us some better guidance. Pay more attention. We need more help. And so then the portal closed, and I walked up the rest of the mountain, and everything was just so in synchrony and so intuitive, and I was so on. This is what happens. And I get up to the top of the mountain, and there's a bench. And I go over to the bench, and I sit down in the middle. And then I'm moved by intuition to go to the farthest right part of the bench. And you just follow that. You're now you're now in, in touch with the field. It's like running you like a string puppet, but you still have to, to do the things that come. Because uh, it's all real-time guidance at this point. You're sort of in guidance. Uh, and then three minutes later, three older people walk up. I can feel them behind me. It's two women and a man. And they come bustling over because they see that there's a person sitting there, but they're far to the right, so they may be able to sit there. That was why I had to move over. 
And they said, oh, can we sit here? I said, oh, sure, you know. Then they said, can we have lunch? <laughs> I said, of course you can have lunch. You know, so there was a kind of a nice, friendly connection. And then they said, uh, oh, what are you doing? And we was talking, and I said, I'm working on the origin of life at UC Santa Cruz. And, and we just had our theory published on the cover of Scientific American, et cetera, et cetera. And then I mentioned something that occurred to me two weeks before when I was in front of a room full of postdocs, students that are just got their PhDs. And I said, there are at least six Nobel Prizes in this work, in the experiments that we're laying out, that Dave Diemer and I are laying out. There's about six Nobel Prizes that are available to you in your careers to, to follow this track. They will be. Because it's fundamental science, it's very exciting, it's very, um, you know, uh, it's attractive. People have won Nobel Prizes for simpler things than we have proposed to, to test. And so they got their attention. And then I mentioned, to, I said to these students, I'd like to be the white-haired, crazy kind of Gandalfy figure in the back of the room in Stockholm when you're going up to receive your Nobel Prize. I just want to be there. And the man that was there, sort of an older man, looked up and said, that's what I'm doing next week. (laughs) They're flying to Stockholm. His graduate student is getting the Nobel Prize in economics, the second graduate student. And he's the guy wearing the tuxedo, the penguin outfit in the back of the room, the official, you know, uh, tuxedo that you have to wear by is made by the Nobel Committee. and receiving their Nobel Prize, and we became friends. And I go to their Christmas party every year, and I meet all the Nobelists at Stanford, because they live at Stanford. Uh, and as I was walking down, I turned to the field or wherever the field was and said, that was an impressive demo of your power. That was really impressive. Because to <laughs> think of the probability of that. It's just amazing. So it's like I take it as a given. I've taken it as a given since I was 9 or 10 years old, and I'm just impressed over and over and over again. I believe it's the greatest tool that humanity will ever have, that that primates will ever grasp, is the interaction and relationship with this field and the respect that we have and the directions we get and the healing we can get from it. It's it It, it rocks. It's getting better and better, and it's our future, and it's our birthright, and it's something we make. Um, so that would be uh, what I hope to leave them with. Wow. What what a wonderful story. I'm, I'm so glad you repeated it. I've heard it once before, of course, but it bears repetition many times because you're getting at the heart of uh, the nature of consciousness, even even though we can't describe what it is, we sure can talk about what it does. Yes. Okay. So we don't know what it is, but we can become it. We can be it all the time. Yeah. And and maybe consciousness with the big C that Ken Wilbur was talking about is this. It's this beautiful relationship with this internetworked, highly tripped out. A highly intelligent, highly beneficent, beneficent, beneficent yeah. thing that actually has our best interests at heart. And like, okay, monkeys are nudging them forward. Like, 
they got to make it. I mean, they got this far. They got to make it. They're going to make it. They're worth it, you know, and despite what they think and what they do, and they're just worth it. We've gotten 4.5 billion years down this road, and we're going to go to the next step. Bruce Damer, what a pleasure once again to have this conversation with you. I feel like uh, all my pores are open. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, well, thank thank you. Uh, and I want to c- close by inviting uh, people to contact me uh, from the show, uh, Bruce at Damer.com. That's my last name, D-A-M-E-R.com, Bruce at Damer.com. And we're actually, and this is sort of a, a new thing, uh, we're actually, I'm open to having not only visitors here at Wild, Wildflower, we're calling the retreat W-Y-L-D-F-L-O-W-E-R, Wildflower is the name of our retreat. Uh, we're certainly welcome to you uh, coming. I have a Patreon fund or thing that a friend of mine helped set up, which will allow me to actually uh, receive uh, contributions so that I can justify my time. I can talk with you on the phone or in Skype at certain Patreon levels. And I'm, I've never done any of this, but my friend said, look, you cannot give away all your time and have no resources because I really don't have any resources. I don't have big funding and I don't have huge secret governments that are financing me. I really don't. And, and, um, Recently, I've just run almost completely out of all funding sources, and I really need that, so I now have a Patreon. Uh, but on, on the other side, we're inviting people who want to work on these projects to come and stay here. So if you'd like to collaborate on anything that you've heard on any podcast, but certainly these wonderful uh, Mishlove podcasts, uh, and you you want to actually be part of this, you can actually come and stay here and you we don't just need people to paint and cut wood but help build companies and build websites and for all of these projects and uh, we may do work trade things but we also need paying long long and short-term members of the community so we're building a community around this and i'm just putting it out there that uh, uh, it's it's prepared to receive people Wonderful. Uh, it's very exciting what you're doing, and I'm delighted uh, to be learning new things about your uh, many multifacets uh, every time we speak. So uh, thank you for that, Bruce. Thank you.